Hello, and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. Today, I am over the moon to be joined by my good friend, Jacqueline Musitwa. Jacqueline has more than 16 years' experience providing legal and regulatory advice, strategy, due diligence services to financial and fintech sector clients, governments and multinationals across a range of African jurisdictions. She has dedicated significant personal time to serving on boards within the financial services sector, where she has contributed to coaching and building capacity of fintech entrepreneurs, initiated legislative transformation across the financial ecosystem, chaired committees including risk governments and compliance, innovation and ICT. She currently sits on the advisory board of Persistent Energy Capital and previously sat on the same for Arch Africa Renewable Energy Fund. Some extra career highlights include holding advisory positions, including the advisor in the office of the Director General of the World Trade Organization and advisor to the Zambian Ministry of Health and Community Development. She also negotiated financing agreements, including the KivaVot $142 million US dollar project, which happened to have won the 2011 Africa Power Deal of the Year, as judged by Euromoney's Project Finance magazine for groundbreaking technology. She has participated as a multi-stakeholder discussions, say again, she has participated in multi-stakeholder discussions between the World Economic Forum, World Trade Organization, and East African governmental stakeholders. Now, Jacqueline, the length of that introduction may also beguile your very, very humble nature, which I know you have, but it's an absolute pleasure to have you joining me today. Thank you so much, Thomas. I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you and everyone today. Perfect. Well, look, let's dive right into things. Now, you're kindly lending your time and expertise to the upcoming Extractives General Council Forum, which is being hosted by Africa Legal, the Investing in African Mining in Daba, and Africa Oil Week across the afternoons of the 29th and 30th of June by taking on the role of co-chairperson. Now, for those that don't know, the event agenda seeks to draw out the commonalities between two vital sectors in Africa. These being mining and oil and gas, with a sprinkling of energy and renewables in there. Now, excuse the broadness of this question, but what do you see as the single most pressing issue affecting both of these vital sectors currently? Is it the relatively short-term impact of the COVID pandemic, for example, or are there more existential threats lurking in the medium term? Well, Thomas, uh, as you said, that is a broad question, but it's also a hard question because both of these sectors are faced with so many challenges, which is why I am so attracted to it. It is an opportunity for us all to put our thinking caps on about how to solve problems in essential sectors. Having said that, I think this year's main topic post-COVID, which we are getting to the post-COVID phase, is really around (laughs) the environment, right? Um, Whether we put it under the broader rubric of ESG, so environmental, social, and governance matters, or whether we decide to take the opportunity um, in the lead up to COP26 in November to really, one, challenge ourselves to say, what impact are we having on the environment? How can we reduce our collective carbon footprint? 
what does it mean for us to coexist with nature? Um, and also moving forward, you know, what is our collective plan? Now, both mining and oil and gas um, have not been the best viewed um, in reality or perception. And so now is really a huge opportunity for the sectors to come clean, uh, if I can say, and demonstrate what they are doing to get to net neutrality ultimately. I think it's an exceptional point. Now, I put my little cynic hat on for a moment here and say, as you said, look, in reality or perception, both these sectors have struggled when it comes to this environmental point. What are some of the key changes that are motivating or forcing these sectors to move towards a genuine commitment to uh, environmental impact issues rather than just uh, greenwashing, I think is the expression used quite often to secure the right finance, the right tick box, the right regulatory approvals. Are there sector-wide issues that are genuinely motivating uh, an attitude and a a willingness to change? I think it's time. Um, I think it's time because right now the world is at a point where there is increased global governance on environmental issues. So with the U.S. stepping back into its Paris Agreement commitments, I think that there is a renewed interest um, and focus on us all doing better. I think besides the new leadership around it, I think there is an increased push from investors. And I think that's critical because without the threat of losing money, I think we've taken the slow approach in the past um, of getting to some of our goals. There's also an increased push from consumers. And consumers are saying, They want to understand what's happening in supply chains and how supply chains are impacting uh, what they end up buying um, in their grocery stores, uh, what goods that they end up buying from electronic stores. And so I think that increased consciousness is also pushing um, mining companies um, as well as um, oil and gas companies to not only think harder, plan harder, strategize harder, but also coming up with commitments. Having said that, of course, greenwashing is there. And I think only time will tell um, how much change is actually done. But we are starting to see commitments that haven't been made in the past. And I think that we do need to at least celebrate those. I don't think work is done. I think we need to continue to push Uh, But I think we are at least taking the initial steps. I think the last point I'll make is really around communities in which mining and oil and gas activities um, take place. They have been vocal for years about the impact of extractive industries on their communities. And finally, we're starting to see an increased recognition by companies of really hearing local voices and really working with local communities to try and figure out what the best solution is for the sustainability of their business activities in those communities. And I think that that is really where the power lies, the fact that there is the change at the local level. 
and we're touching upon a topic that I know we're going to dive into a little later in the recording around social license to operate. So I think, uh, you know, very much stay tuned and we're going to be deeping, uh, deepening our dive into that topic a little later. And look, a, a quick observation for me, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, the investor and consumer dynamic. Now, we're actually seeing a really interesting trend at the moment when it comes to uh, kind of a merging of those two. And I'm talking about retail engagement with um, securities markets, particularly in the US, you're seeing a real groundswell of far more active and activist uh, retail um, involvement in, 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 in stock markets. So for those publicly traded entities in this field, more and more, retail has a bigger and bigger voice and a bigger and bigger uh, clout when it comes to where they choose to put their, put their money. And individuals, uh, you know, expressing a voice is all well and good. But you know what's even more impactful is impacting with a voice and a, a share price. Now, I don't know how long that's going to take to actually impact African markets that are typically um, a lot less uh, uh, liquid when it comes to engagement with with securities and stock markets. But it's an interesting kind of crossover between those two as well. Now, pulling things back to the to the Extractives GC Forum. It's the General Council Forum. It's a big focus on the role of the in-house council when it comes to these key sectors. Now, looking back upon the environmental impact point is the kind of key issue that we're grappling with at the moment. I think you know, the role of the in-house council is so often overlooked as to its potential to add significant value to the businesses they serve, especially in, in relation to proactive or strategic initiatives, uh, which are very much the kind that you'll see being deployed in response to the environmental challenges and overcoming those challenges in a particular organization. So with the key issue of environmental impact and governance and so on, what is key for Africa's lawyers? And I'm talking both in-house and private practice here. What is their role in, in starting to, to address this and becoming more active in, in this regard? Over my career as a lawyer, I think our role as lawyers has changed, thankfully. So it's gone simply from providing legal advice to balancing providing legal advice to providing government-related um, and geopolitical advice to providing regulatory advice all in one. And so for an African lawyer in the space, I think it's key to not only stay on top of current trends, understand the changing legal and regulatory environment, not only in one's own jurisdiction, but across the world as it relates to the sectors. But I also think that there's an opportunity to really come in from a risk perspective. We look at things from a risk perspective. And I think it's now more than ever the opportunity to provide um, this link between, as I mentioned, legal, regulatory, and governance, and provide that to the business clients that we serve. I think by staying on top of the trends and knowing what's happening in other places and really keeping our finger on the pulse of where we are, we have the opportunity to provide great value to our clients and ultimately help them prepare for these future trends that are coming on board. Um, I've worked um, on advising on large infrastructure projects here on the continent, um, and I've also worked on advising mining clients. And over time, 
environment has also has been relevant, but it hasn't been within my realm. And now it, there's finally an opportunity, for instance, for me um, as an advisor to connect all of the risks associated with the environment to other legal advice that I'm providing. And I'm really excited about this because I think that as a lawyer, it definitely increases the value I'm able to provide to clients. Now, right now, a lot of the work I'm doing is uh, through Kaleni Hill Resources is providing ESG advice. And clients aren't coming to me for legal advice. They're coming to me because of my ability to connect the dots between their environmental, social, and governance issues um, and their ability to operate on the continent. And so I do think it's an exciting time for lawyers really to be the go-to professionals for this changing environment on the continent. I think it's a fantastic point and very much aligns with my thinking. I think, you know, a key trend that I see time and time again uh, with this very podcast is the, the increasing irrelevance of siloed legal advice or legal advice in, in isolation, um, pure black letter law, uh, reiteration. You know, there are computer programs. There is, there's legal research that can pull up precedents and legislation. Businesses don't need a map reader. They need a navigator. You know, they need someone that goes way beyond just telling them the coordinates and telling them how this links with that, which links with that, which could go this way or could go that way. But here is my recommendation. I think I've seen an evolution of the profession where people felt like just because they were giving an A, B scenario, they had finally cracked it and they were a business-minded lawyer. No, you're halfway there. You need to have the, the 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 holistic view to be able to say, well, here's one thing, here's another, and here's my recommendation. You know, so often the legal advice was still sitting on the fence, and I think it was something that 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 necessitated them being on the periphery more than they needed to. Like, if you're not going to get a hard answer from someone, why should they be involved in strategic? Uh, uh, discussions. If they're not going to like back themselves up, then they're just going to be room meat <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than adding real value. So I think we're totally aligned when it when it comes to that. Um, look, I want to circle back onto the social license to operate that we mentioned earlier, because you're playing a key role in the exploration of mining companies, social licenses to operate in African markets with a a really interesting specific focus on Chinese enterprises. Uh, And this is through Oxford University's China Law and Development Project. Um, I, I think another key piece of your research which research was just made available um, entitled Chinese Mining Companies and Their Social License to Operate in Zambia. Now, we'll provide a full link to this fascinating report in the podcast description. And I think it's worth being said that the Zambian, uh, well, from my mind, the Zambian example in this situation is so indicative of other African jurisdictions. It just so happens that it's a very active market and one that you're asked to focus on. But I think the takeaways on it are, are really applicable across a number of African mineral-rich um, mining-intensive uh, 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 jurisdictions. And to follow up on that, a key personal takeaway from this was how obvious the development and importance of social license has expanded rather dramatically as of late. Now, what do you put such a 
apparent, if I'm being cynical, or genuine, if I'm being not, acceptance of SLO, as it's known, being a business imperative with genuine value and really being worthy of focus and investment. What do you put this uh, pretty dramatic change in attitude, particularly in relation to Chinese enterprises, down to? I think there are several things that are important. Um, One is technology. Now, local communities are able to go online and see what's happening in other parts of the world, and they're starting to demand more than they previously have in the past. The second is engagement with mining companies has changed over time. It's gone from being them versus us to mining companies really realizing that if their work is going to be sustainable, they need to engage differently. Now, engaging is not only important at the political level, it's important when engaging um, with local, for instance, in my publication, I use the example of local chiefs. It's important to look at traditional authorities. And then beyond that, it's important to engage um, with other relevant stakeholders. And so I think as mining companies have been stopped from mining, and such stoppages have affected their bottom line, they've thought really hard about which stakeholders are important and what types of approvals they need. You can apply to a ministry for your various regulatory approvals, but above and beyond that, for your work to continue, you need that social license from the communities you operate in. One, to reassure them that you are there for them as much as they are there for you to succeed. Two, it's making sure that you're engendering trust. And by engendering trust, you're assuring them that you are going to keep their environment clean. You are going to provide them with jobs. And you are going to make sure that by the time you leave, you leave them better than you found them. I think the third aspect um, of how this process has been evolving over time has actually been a legal tool. And the fact that a lot more local communities um, that haven't typically had legal recourse in their own jurisdictions are now able to sue companies in the UK, in the US, and other more developed jurisdictions where they haven't been able to in the past. So now it's forced companies to really go, hmm, What can I do better so that I am not taken to court in a jurisdiction where people might actually have recourse? And so I think these have really shifted how, one, communities engage with mining companies, but on the flip side, how mining companies equally engage with communities. Really, really concise uh, answer there, Jacqueline. I think that's that's a a great overview. And what I think people struggle with often with the social license point is how to get there. What practical steps can be taken when it comes to community engagement? And 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 for me, communication is your absolute starting point every single time. It's not token gesturism. It's not simply engagement with, with traditional uh, power structures and stakeholders. And a great example actually came from what uh, was given to me by um, a, a very good friend of mine, Jasmine Abrahams at Ivanhoe Mines. Now, they actually 
uh, uh, started to deliver free Wi-Fi to all communities that they they operated in, um, particularly uh, in in uh, Southern Africa. And beyond that, you might think, oh, great token gesture, you give them some free Wi-Fi, you know. But th- they made sure that the Wi-Fi hub was the, the the landing page that you started on was a communication hub where you could post grievances, you could see job openings, you could enter dialogue with your local representative from Ivanhoe. So you could see that something that could be taken as simply, you know, tokenism, gesturing, was very much linked with opening a dialogue. And it was through this, this hub that is turned into their key communication conduit for their local community. So, uh, you know, practical examples are always what people hunger for. And that, for me, was a really great example of how you move from theoretical community engagement to genuine communication with uh, a conduit into longer-term benefit rather than it just being, we like you because you gave us free Wi-Fi. It goes way beyond that. Now, I absolutely, sorry to interject, but I absolutely agree with that point. (laughs) Uh, while I was at Rio Tinto, that was something that we were equally trying um, to do. And unfortunately, by the time I left Rio Tinto, we had not done that. But we did recognize as a company at that time the importance of engaging and using multiple platforms for engagement. And we knew that because of the demographics of the communities that we were in, which were typically young that is less than 35 years old, it was important to engage with them through different structures. And the internet was such a powerful tool uh, to engage with this up-and-coming community that was also going to be the next uh, level of people that were going to be employed by the mine, the next level that were being educated by the mine, and ultimately the next people that we really needed to have that level of trust for us to continue to operate the mine. I think it's a great point, and I think it's indicative of of somewhere where a lot of businesses get it wrong. They focus far too much on the messaging and far too little on the platform through which that message is delivered. So you'll have PR teams high-fiving each other because they've done yet another amazing community newsletter, which they then print and it's distributed in pamphlet form, which no one reads and no one engage with. And which is in English and members of the community don't understand. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Whereas it's that one step further and going, right, you don't get to tell that community what the right message is and what the right platform is. Ask them. Because if you ever try and be as pompous, I think is almost the word, as being able to dictate what message is going to work what message is going to placate is probably the worst example. And what platform is going to ensure that that's disseminated properly? You're going to get it wrong. Sit back and listen. Ask the community what needs to be done, what will help, and what platform they'd find most useful to have that communication and that conversation on, and you'll get somewhere. Try and dictate on either one of those, and you're going to be caught short. But anyway, this is a topic that we are going to be able to discuss at length at the GC Forum. We actually have a session that you're helping run for us, um, and it is Jasmine and her colleague Peter Schmidt from Ivanhoe that are joining us. It's called The Human Touch. Um, It's going to be on the second day, so the 30th of June, um, uh, midway through the afternoon. And this is going to be a real deep dive into the, the S 
in ESG, really looking at how sensible deployment of capital can reap rewards well into the future when it comes to community engagement and so on. So a little bit of a teaser on the kind of topics we're going to be looking at. And I encourage all of our in-house friends to register for that event. We're going to make sure that there's a link to register in this podcast description as well. Now, being aware of time, I wanted to move us ahead, Jacqueline, to a quick look outside of a specific sector, but very much in line with your experience and interests. Now, many of your most high-profile appointments are focused on driving engagement with organizations and government departments or initiatives on a pan-African and international footing. What I mean by this is it's about driving engagement and dialogue on a global or pan-African level, not just siloed, kind of isolated, company-wide initiatives. So, you know, a bit of a unique perspective here. What are your key observations around how both governments and corporates operating in African markets need to adapt their behavior to ensure the creation of long life and meaningful, mutually beneficial relationships that happen to span borders? I mean, a great start point is where are people getting it terribly wrong? (laughs) In several places. But I will say... What we do need to focus on is something we've already talked about, is really around communication. Communication is critical at so many levels, and making sure we're communicating with the right people is important. Making sure we're communicating at the right time with the right messaging is equally important. Unfortunately, sometimes we have the right message at the wrong time, and it just falls on deaf ears. And sometimes it's the wrong people communicating the right message. And so I think when I look back to my experience at the World Trade Organization, or working with TDB, Trade and Development Bank Group in East Africa, or you know working with a large corporate like Rio Tinto, What has come out of all of those experiences for me is the importance of making sure that as we communicate, we've effectively mapped who we need to communicate with, what impact they have on the outcomes we're looking for, and being clear about what we need from the situation and also how our ask benefits them. I think a lot of times corporates are naive when they make requests to governments and they don't really consider what's in it for the governments. And they get surprised about why governments aren't delivering on their requests. It's very clear, I think, as in all human interactions, we need to know what motivates the other side. And using that knowledge, only then can we come up with a mutual solution. Second to communication, I think it's important to really make sure that uh, companies especially understand where a country's going. A lot of countries have national development plans. It's important to know what the country wants for itself and make sure that if you're operating in that country, your goals are aligned with that country. That means that as legal systems change, as hard as it might be on your business, understand why countries are evolving their legal systems. Oftentimes, it is to increase national wealth. And understanding the role that you as a corporate play in the development process 
is really important. It doesn't make sense anymore to extract and not make sure that you're transparent in the taxes you're providing and not make sure that you are able to support the environments you're in. I think that's the key change of business in the past couple of years is business now has to be more accountable to the countries and local communities within which they operate. And countries are demanding that. And as previously mentioned, people are demanding that. So it's really important to make sure that there is that level of transparency. I think the third... All right, Jacqueline, you go ahead. Pardon me. The third, I think, from an Africa-wide perspective is really the increased agency. And the increased agency in really saying we are coming up with African-wide solutions to African problems. We see it at the highest of policy levels now with the African Free Continental Trade Agreement. We're seeing it also with African CDC and the response to COVID-19. So there is this renewed confidence of really saying we are taking ownership. And so if you are going to operate in this space, you do need to step up and make sure that you are respecting what ownership means. And so I think communication, understanding the long-term plan, and really respecting you know, Africa's agency is the only way for us to really have sustainable businesses on the continent. I think it's very, very insightful. And, and circle back a cu- couple of points. So I think that motivation point is a really interesting one and and something that i've seen more and more of is the risk of trying to second guess what is motivating the 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 other party i think those days are gone you know if you think simply by asking what someone wants in these discussions or what the key motivators are you're actually putting yourself on the back foot forget it you know you need to have honest and frank discussions, especially if you're engaging with governments, because African governments don't want to have to put up with the cloak and daggers, the neo-colonialist approach where people are constantly trying to infer what's motivating them or really going, oh, well, they say that, but it's it's probably this. It's probably, you know, self, uh, self-engorgement, self-aggrandizement. Um, you know, there's, we'll second guess it and do the same old, same old. Because you're going to get caught short. There's genuine change happening. So be honest when it comes to asking and finding out and genuinely discovering the motivating factors rather than just trying to second guess, which seems to have been the modus operandi of, of, of years past. And I think the, the agency point for me is a fascinating one because I think the next step on that journey, we talked about you know African solutions, African pan-African solutions, pan-African problems, but in pan-African talent utilization is our next step absolutely (laughs) if you're if you're i think the power of demonstrating a genuine commitment to this incredible um continent and you know it's incredible people is to showcase how you are acting responsibly for the benefit of yourself it's going to be the case the communities you serve through having the right pan-african approach but also looking at African talent that can help deliver that. And it isn't going to be the quick, easy solution. But I think it's going to be those corporates that genuinely invest in discovering 
African capacity is one of the biggest problems. And Africa Legal is trying to help with that in the in the legal space at the very least. And then developing that talent, showcasing that talent. I think it's going to be those international corporates that are really embraced by the markets that they purport to serve. Um, but it's going to take a bit more time. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think in years past, part of the miscommunication was companies not really having the right people on board. Sometimes there's the assumption that, you know, if you get someone who is great because they worked well, you know, expanding operations in Latin America or in Asia, it's going to work for them on Africa. That's not necessarily the case. I think it is important to, one, look at African talent and understand how Africans can help grow your business. Two, it's important to develop uh, talent. We have a continent that is very young. And so part of your future workforce needs to be shaped and molded into a way that will help you grow. And so there's no getting out of helping Africans grow and develop over time. I think the third part of talent is not only growing people within your organization and making sure you're committed to community education, but it's also who you bring on your board and making sure that you have an appropriate African voice to help guide you as you think through expansion or think through operating on the continent. A lot of multinationals on the uh, working on the continent don't have that representative voice, and I think that that needs to change. In part because of the rate of population growth and where markets are growing, Africa is growing at such a fast rate, and this will reflect a major market for a lot of the uh, multinationals operating here. And so it only makes sense that if your business is growing so much here, you need to have an African voice at the highest of your governance level to help you understand this market. 100%. And do it now. Because it's going to be very late, very quickly, I feel, with the growth of the opportunity that, that we're seeing. And Jacqueline, a personal question to close with uh, is something that I, I do like to ask many of our guests, and I think it really does provide a, a lovely end to, uh, to, to these recordings. And it's, if you could somehow give advice to your younger self at the, the very start of their career, what would this advice be and, and why? I think the main advice I would have given my younger self would have been to, to dare more. I think I've taken some really, really good risks in the past, but there were a lot of times where I was either too cautious or listened to advice that was not daring enough. And I think it is important for us to use our curiosity um, to really take more risks. And so I would say dare for anyone young in their career that isn't sure about what to do next, go off the limb and do something really different. I found over time that we always find our feet. And so if you take one miscalculation, it's okay. You'll learn a lesson. And at the end of the day, that lesson is worth its value in gold. 
Jacqueline, you're making me chuckle though, because because I'm not sure the world would be ready for a Jacqueline that was even more uh, 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 risk willing, if you will. This is this is the young female African uh, heritage practitioner who left Pillsbury and founded a a U.S. Rwandan law group, the Hoja Law Group. Um, quite early in your career. So I'm always fascinated to think if that wasn't the risky thing to do, um, what was? Uh <laughs> oh, no, that, that was that was risky. And we can have a long conversation <laughs> on starting legal practices. When is the best time versus when is not the best time? But I think back and that was definitely a risk. Um, but it was a risk that I took in a bit of a calculated way. Um, what I didn't plan for and it came over years to come, and it was really how does one grow a business across geographies? Um, how does one evolve a legal practice as time changes and as one's own interest changes? But looking back, I definitely think outside legal practice, I could have taken more risks. Um, I'm excited to at least have started my board journey fairly early. I'm glad that I had the opportunity and the trust from people to help me guide them through their own strategic journeys. Um, but I definitely think that there's more I could have taken on uh, that could have made me even more well-rounded at an earlier age. Having said that, I think everything happens when it's supposed to. There's a time and a place for everything. So definitely no regrets on my end, uh, but definitely more to come from a risk perspective. So watch out. Well, I'll tell you what, Jacqueline, if you did have any regrets with the wonderful life that you've lived and continued to lead, I think it would have to plunge me into quite the uh, existential crisis uh, when I was comparing uh, whether I am you know, content with how things have played out. But I think we are both in a wonderful position. And I do really agree with the sentiment of things happening at the right time and, and it never really being too late. So uh, lovely words to close with there. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Thomas. I look forward to future interactions, not only with you, but with everybody who's going to join us for the conference next month. All UGCs within the extractive space, please sign up. We promise to deliver a very interesting and worthwhile time for you. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. As And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. If you are new to the podcast series and want to peruse our back catalogue, this is in available in its entirety on all major podcast channels, these being Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And as always, do visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views, and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So without further ado, this has been Tom Pearson, and I'm signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>